in the Pew Bible, it's 588. A prayer of Moses, the man of God. Lord, you have been our dwelling place in all generations. Before the mountains were brought forth, or ever you had formed the earth and the world, from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. You return man to dust and say, Return, O children of man, for a thousand years in your sight are but as yesterday when it is past, or as a watch in the night. You sleep them away as with a flood. They are like a dream, like grass that is renewed in the morning. In the morning it flourishes and is renewed. In the evening it fades and withers. For we are brought to an end by your anger. By your wrath we are dismayed. You have, our, you have set our iniquities before you, our secret sins in the light of your presence. For all our days pass away under your wrath. We bring our years to an end like a sigh. The years of our life are seventy, or even by reason of strength, eighty. Yet their span is but toil and trouble. They are soon gone, and we fly away. Who considers the power of your anger and your wrath according to the fear of you? So teach us. Teach us to number our days, that we may get a heart of wisdom. Return, O Lord, how long? Have pity on your servants. Satisfy us in the morning with your steadfast love, that we may rejoice and be glad all our days. Make us glad for as many days as you have afflicted us, and for as many years as we have seen evil. Let your work be shown to your servants and your glorious power to their children. Let the favor of the Lord our God be upon us and establish the work of our hands upon us. Yes, establish the work of our hands. You do. You join me in prayer. Our gracious God, God and Heavenly Father, we thank you. Lord, truly this is amazing grace that we are here today. Lord, this is unfailing love that brings us here. And we just want to say thank you, God, for, for making us a part of your family. God, thank you for drawing us to your son, Jesus Christ. Truly, Lord, uh, you have set our iniquities before us, our secret sins in the light of your present hurt are there. And Father, we recognize, Lord, that we come before you on this day, that we, that we come uh, to to participate in communion, Lord, we just ask that you would guide us, uh, direct us, uh, Father, clear our hearts, Father, search our hearts and know us, Lord, see if there be any harmful way in us, Lord, and forgive us for our sins, uh, Lord, we just ask that in, in your name. Lord Jesus, we, uh, we, we do ask that you, as uh, Daryl read, that, that, Lord, that you would cause us to number our days that we may get a heart of wisdom. Eternal, Lord. Lord, how long, we ask, have pity on, our, on us, uh, your servants, Father. God, we, we ask that you would satisfy us in the morning with your steadfast love, that we may rejoice and be glad in all our days. God, make us glad 
for as many days as you have afflicted us. For as many years as we have seen evil, Father, God, let your work be shown to us, your servants. God, we ask all these things. Lord, we ask that you would lead us, guide us, direct us, open our hearts, Lord, that we might hear your word today. Lord, teach us, we pray. God, we ask these things in Jesus' wonderful and precious Fathers, we come before you this morning still aware, celebrating, and conscious of the greatest gift ever given. And Lord, as we come to worship, Lord, bend our hearts towards you. May, as we face a new year, Commit, Father, to loving you with everything we have. Father, we do pray for one another. Much stress, Lord, is put on family and relationships at this time of the year. Lord, may there be peace brought by you in our regular families, but in particular, Father, to our church family. So that, Father, as we go through this, this new time that you've allowed us, may our testimony grow, may our body grow, may the saving grace of Jesus Christ be preached in our community. Lord, we are grateful for this family. And Lord, May we not be just observers, but participators. That loving one another is not done from afar. So we commit ourselves in this coming year, Lord, to sharing the gospel and being the gospel. As we pray in Jesus' name, amen. Please be seated. Good morning, brothers and sisters, and Happy New Year to you all. I hope you are as excited as I am to see what the Lord has in store for EVC in 2023. And I just want to start out the year by asking for something from you. And that being that I am sincerely asking for your prayers for my family and I as we continue to settle in uh, and adjust and for all your elders, as we diligently labor in the ministry of the word and of prayer in our service to you, and as we seek to grow in unity and love for one another as an elder board. And let me just report to you that from my perspective, 
the Lord is already blessing us in that way, and it is a wonderful thing uh, to see. Uh, so please, we desire your prayers, and we need your prayers. So please pray for us this year. And please turn your copy of God's Word with me to Philippians chapter 4. Philippians chapter 4. And that's page 1166, 1166 in your pew Bible. And if you're a visitor this morning and don't own a Bible, we would love for you to feel free to keep uh, that pew Bible as our gift to you. There are also some welcome notepads uh, that you can take, and there's an information card in there that you can fill out and drop off in the offerings box. Uh, we would love the opportunity to reach out and follow up with you. This morning we will be concluding our verse-by-verse -verse exposition of the book of Philippians. And next week we will start a new series that I have titled, Who is God? Who is God? In which we will examine the being of God uh, to include his attributes. I'm not sure how long that series will be, but probably a few months. And we'll be considering things such as the doctrine of the Trinity, um, and things like the love of God, the sovereignty of God, and more. Uh, we will be looking at some difficult topics, some sensitive topics, uh, some new to you perhaps, but all of it with an aim that we would all come out of that time knowing God better, as He has revealed Himself in His Word for our good and for His glory. So I hope that you will look forward to that with me. Now, two Sundays ago, we began looking at chapter 4 in two parts. And I titled this two-part message, Stand Firm, or Standing Firm. And we began to see how that is the Apostle Paul's purpose. As he is now concluding this letter to the Philippians, he exhorts them to stand firm. That's in verse 1 of chapter 4, Stand Firm. And I divided the chapter into four main headings, of which we only got to cover the first one so far, which was its characteristics. The characteristics that we see of a Christian who is standing firm. And we saw that a Christian who is standing firm is one who strives for unity, one who rejoices, is gentle, strives for contentment, and trusts God in His providence as it is played out in our lives. And so those were the characteristics of a Christian who stands firm in this text. And again, I remind us that we all struggle in our striving for those things. And so thanks be to God that as Philippians 2.13 says, it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure, right? He is our help and Christ is our intercessor and perfect high priest. And so those were the characteristics. This morning we conclude by looking at the other three headings. So stand firm or standing firm, its cultivation, its crop, and its catalyst. And as we begin, I would like to read the chapter again to bring it to the forefront of our minds. So let's begin by reading in verse 1 of chapter 4, where God's inerrant, infallible, and sufficient word which he has spoken to us here through the pen of the Apostle Paul reads. Therefore, my brothers, whom I love and long for, my joy and crown, stand firm thus in the Lord, my beloved. 
I entreat Judea and I entreat Suntuke to agree in the Lord. Yes, I ask you also, true companion, help these women who have labored side by side with me in the gospel, together with Clement and the rest of my fellow workers whose names are in the book of life. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. Do not be anxious about anything. But in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things. What you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things, and the God of peace will be with you. I rejoiced in the Lord greatly that now at length you have revived your concern for me. You were indeed concerned for me, but you had no opportunity. Not that I'm speaking of being in need, for I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low, and I know how to abound in any and every circumstance. I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Yet it was kind of you to share my trouble. And you, Philippians, yourselves know that in the beginning of the gospel, when I left Macedonia, no church entered into partnership with me in giving and receiving except you only. Even in Thessalonica, you sent help for my needs once again, once and again. Not that I seek the gift, but I seek the fruit that increases to your credit. I have received full payment and more. I am well supplied, having received from Epaphroditus the gifts you sent, a fragrant offering, a sacrifice acceptable and pleasing to God. And my God will supply every need of yours according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. To our God and Father be glory forever and ever. Amen. Greet every saint in Christ Jesus. The brothers who are with me greet you. All the saints greet you, especially those of Caesar's household. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. Let's pray. And Father, we do thank you. Lord, as we come and gather together to worship you, Father, we thank you and we praise you for your grace that you have bestowed upon us. We thank you for Christ and his willingness to humble himself and come into this world and take upon himself human flesh to become truly human while being truly God and to die on a cross for the sins that we have committed. Father, we pray that that reality, those truths, would empower us this coming year to be more like Christ. And Father, we pray now for the preaching of your word, that you would empower it, that your spirit would be at work within all of us to do just that, to make us more like Christ. And Father, we pray that that would be true for your glory and your honor. And we pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, William Gurnall, again, as he continues his instruction in his classic work, 
the Christian in complete armor says, when obedience falters, faith weakens, close quote. And in the first part of this message, we saw aspects of a flourishing faith, some characteristics of a flourishing Christian. And throughout this letter to the Philippians, we see the reality of synergistic, progressive sanctification. That's big terminology, uh, but that is simply to say that it is both God and ourselves that work together in our sanctification. We are commanded to progress in our sanctification, right, to run the race, but it is a synergistic work because as Galatians 2.20 says, it is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. In Philippians 2, again, it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. And it is progressive because it is a process that continues until glorification, which comes after death. And the Apostle Paul is very much concerned that these Philippian Christians would press on in their sanctification, that they would cultivate these characteristics of a mature Christian, of a Christian who stands firm. And so this is a call to obedience, to stand firm. And if your obedience to cultivate these characteristics falters, then your faith will weaken, as Gurnall would say. But the opposite is true as well, beloved. If your obedience persists, your faith will prosper. So let's consider how the apostle instructs us to cultivate these characteristics. What are the crops of that cultivation and how... Uh, or in what ought to be our catalyst or motivation to pursue these things and how God works alongside us as our helper in the process. So notice now with me our second heading of this two-part message, Standing Firm, It's Cultivation. Look at verse 8. Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, Whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things. Now stop right there. That is one way you cultivate and grow in the characteristics that will help you to stand firm. Think about these things. And yet again, this is an imperative sentence. And in the Greek, it is in the present middle imperative, which simply means that it is a command that is expected to be followed on an ongoing basis. Not just once, not just every now and then. It's like your doctor telling you, cut back on the sugary stuff, right? It doesn't mean just this week. It means you need to cut back on that sugary stuff, period, right? But thankfully... Uh, the doctor is not an apostle, so that command is less authoritative. So I'll see you by the muffins after the service. Uh, but this command here is from an apostle. Therefore, it is from God. And if you want to stand firm in your faith, you must think on these things regularly. And what is Paul getting at when he, le when he lists these things out? Whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, right? 
I really don't think it's necessary for us to do a word study on each of these things. I think we get the point, don't we? I think what he is merely warning us here is with the reality that our minds are a battleground and we are responsible for our thoughts. There are good things we should think about and certain things that we should not. And friends, here's another aspect of this reality that we should be very aware of. Your thoughts are not private to you. You are not free as a Christian to entertain whatever kind of thoughts run into your mind. In fact, the opposite is true. Psalm 139, verses 1 through 4. O Lord, you have searched me and known me. You know when I sit down and when I rise up. You discern my thoughts from afar. You search out my path and my lying down and are acquainted with all my ways. Even before a word is on my tongue, behold, O Lord, you know it all together. And we're told the same of our Lord Jesus throughout the Gospels, are we not? Matthew 9, 4. But Jesus, knowing their thoughts, Luke 6, 8. But Jesus knew their thoughts and said, Luke 9, 47. But Jesus, knowing the thoughts of their hearts, Jesus knows every thought that goes in your mind and you are responsible for them before him. And I think that's what the apostle is getting at. You need to be careful what things you let in your mind, what things you allow to dwell in your mind, what things you look at, listen to, watch, because those things that you consume externally tend to linger internally. And so of those things, of those thoughts that run through your mind, you should be asking, is this worthy of praise? Is there excellence in this? And the standard for answering that question is not your subjective opinion. It is the objective morality of the word of God. Paul speaks of the reality of this being a battlefield in 2 Corinthians as well. In chapter 10, verses 4 through 6, when he says, For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but have divine power to destroy strongholds. We destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God and take every thought captive to obey Christ. That is what you are called to do. If you want to cultivate these characteristics that will help you to stand firm in the faith, you must work at taking every thought captive to obey Christ. And we see another way to cultivate these characteristics in verse 9 of our main text. Paul writes, What you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things. Practice these things. Yet another present imperative statement. And what Paul is saying here is be a disciple. And be a disciple maker. Be a good follower of Christ. By being a follower of those who are around you who act most like Christ and who can teach you about Christ, who point you to Christ, who push you to Christ, and who make you want to strive for more Christ-likeness. Discipleship is at the heart of this imperative statement. 
And let me just encourage or challenge you. Not all of us are gifted and called to preach from the pulpit or to teach a Sunday school class or what have you. But we are all called, excuse me, we are all called to be teachers in the sense of discipleship. The Great Commission applies to every single Christian. Go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to, to observe all that I have commanded you. You are called to be a teacher in that sense. And in Hebrews 5, that was the charge that the author of Hebrews had against his Hebrew audience. When the author writes in verses 12 through 14, though by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you again the basic principles of the oracles of God. You need milk, not solid food, for everyone who lives on milk is unskilled in the word of righteousness since he is a child. And listen to how this ties right back to what Paul is encouraging us to do here in Philippians 4 uh, regarding the protecting of our minds. Uh, Hebrews 5.14 But solid food is for the mature, for those who have their powers of discernment trained by constant practice to distinguish good from evil. Constant practice to distinguish good from evil. That's just what a mature Christian is. It takes practice. It's hard work. But it is necessary work if you are to stand firm. And the Philippians had learned and received and heard and seen in Paul a great example of these things. A great example of a disciple-making disciple. And God has given the church, meaning each other, to us for this very purpose. Right? That we would build each other up to maturity in the faith to stand firm. And so how are you looking in regards to those things? Are you a disciple-making disciple? Are you putting on the armor of God to daily wage war in the battlefield of your mind? Are your powers of discernment trained up to distinguish good from evil? And Lord knows we live in times where that ability is more necessary than ever. So are you standing firm? So those are just two ways, but they are weighty ones, are they not? Which the apostle gives us is cultivating practices for standing firm. They are almost all-encompassing when you really think about it. If you think on these things and practice the examples, right? if you're a disciple-making disciple, you will therefore then strive for unity, you will rejoice, you will find contentment, so on and so forth. So think on these things, meaning guard your minds and practice these things. Be a good disciple and a disciple-maker. <clears throat> this is how you cultivate those characteristics. Now let's consider our third heading, standing firm, its crop. Standing firm, its crop. And by its crop, I simply mean, what are some of the immediate fruits that you will see or can consider as expected from the acts of cultivating those characteristics? 
ultimately they lead to a stronger foundation on which you will more easily stand firm. <clears throat> and this is done in your pursuit of obedience. As I mentioned earlier, if your obedience persists, your faith will prosper. But how exactly will it prosper? The apostle gives us some ways in our text. Look at the rest of verse 9. Practice these things, and the God of peace will be with you. If you do this, then this. That's a fruit of practicing these things. The God of peace will be with you. But also look back at verse 7. Back when Paul was telling his readers to not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, to let your requests be known to God. Look at verse 7. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. If you do this, then this. Do you see that? Do you remember me mentioning synergistic progressive sanctification at the start? You see it at play right here. Work out your salvation with fear and trembling, as we're told in Philippians 2. Press on towards the gospel, but you're not alone. And here are some wonderful promises to cling to. The fruits of that labor, the yielding crop of the sowing of obedience. The God of peace will be with you, and not only will he be with you, the God of peace will bestow upon you the peace of God. And look at what this peace of God does for you. It will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. And there is the Apostle Paul continuing on with this battle and militaristic imagery. Because in plain English, in, in a plain English reading, it almost sounds like just a warm, embracing type of guarding, doesn't it? Uh, at least that's how it reads to me in English. Will you... Uh, will guard your hearts. It's like a nice hug. Now I'm being a little facetious there, and maybe I'm the only one that reads it like that, uh, but it sounds kind of kind of soft and gentle. But this is militaristic language in the Greek. Paul uses the same root word in 2 Corinthians 11.32 when he says, at Damascus, the governor under King Aretas was guarding the city of Damascus in order to seize me. And again in Galatians 3.23 when he writes, Now before faith came, we were held captive under the law, imprisoned until the coming faith would be revealed. Captive being the word uh, that has the same root word translated as guarding in our text. And the military background is exactly where this word here in Philippians 4.7 comes from. Fruerasei uh, comes from the word fruuro Fruusos, which means a sentinel or military guard. And according to one source, it properly means to guard or keep watch like a military sentinel or figuratively to actively display whatever defensive and offensive means are necessary to guard. So you see, this is a powerful display of a forceful guarding on the part of the Lord. And what is he guarding? Your hearts and your minds. Beloved, this should be one of the greatest encouragements to us. As I'm sure it must have been to these Philippians as they read everything else that Paul has written to them in this letter. 
Again, there are some hard-hitting things, some, some hard standards and warnings by which he calls them and us to live by. Right, chapter 1, verse 27, let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. Verse 29, it has been granted to you to suffer for his sake. Chapter 2, verse 14, be children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation. But shine us a light to the world, hold fast to the word of life. Chapter 3, verse 2, look out for the dogs, look out for the evildoers. Chapter 4, look out within yourself, right? In your mind, your own mind is a battlefield. Paul was in chains as he is writing this letter, and he was under attack from all angles, as it were. And what he wants us to know and what he was trying to communicate to these Philippian Christians whom he loved is that though we might not, we might not be in chains, we are likewise under attack from every angle, temptations at every turn, and battling even within ourselves with our old selves, with the indwelling and remaining sin nature that is within us all. War is being waged at every angle from within and without. It is almost too much to bear, and it would be if it were not for Christ. If it were not for the fact that, as Paul reminds us in chapter 3, verse 20, that we are citizens of heaven, and us such, beloved, we are under the protection of that state, which is the kingdom of God. And Paul here tells us that we are just under the protection of his armies, but that it is the king himself, the God of the universe, who stands garrisoned and guards, and, and, and though your armor may at times fail through, negli through negligence or whatever it may be, and leaves you defenseless, nevertheless, Christian, your heart, your mind belongs to the Lord. They are eternally in His possession, under His protection. And neither demons, Satan, no combination of powers and principalities, not even your remaining sinful nature can make an advance against this shield, which is strong enough to overtake and overcome. Nothing and separate you from the love of God in Christ Jesus. Take heart. You will win the war, regardless of how many battles you might lose along the way. Psalm 125, verse 1. Those who trust in the Lord are like Mount Zion, which cannot be moved, but abides forever. And that's why Paul can tell these Philippians with full confidence in chapter, six, in chapter 1, verse 6. I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. I mean, how comforting is that? Such powerful and beautiful promises for us to cling to. And we can do all of these things that we are called to do through Christ who strengthens us. Look at verse 10. I rejoice in the Lord greatly that now at length you have revived your concern for me. You were indeed concerned for me, but you had no opportunity. Not that I'm speaking of being in need, for I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low, and I know how to abound. 
in any and every circumstance. I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Here is a third crop yielded from the sowing of cultivating the characteristics of standing firm. Contentment. Paul says he learned the secret to contentment. And it is one we all need to know and put into practice. And what is that secret? Jesus Christ himself. Cultivate these characteristics. And you will be empowered to believe and trust that his grace is sufficient for you. And by his power, you will be able to find contentment in any and every situation. Easier said than done. But it can be done. And Paul is a perfect example of that reality. And by the way, that is what the Apostle Paul is speaking about when he says he can do all things through Christ who strengthens him. And so I do think it is taking it out of context when, say, a football player paints a 4 and a 13 on his face and thinks that somehow that means that he is going to be empowered to win the game. That's not how Paul is using this text. This is about contentment. This is about sanctification. This is about Christ's likeness and suffering for Christ. And I also love when Paul says in 1 Timothy 6.6, Godliness with contentment is great gain. So contentment. The God of peace being with you and the peace of God guarding your hearts and your minds are the crops or yields of standing firm. And lastly, notice our fourth heading of this two-part message, standing firm, it's catalyst. It's catalyst. And by that I simply mean, what is it that the Apostle Paul tells us here that should help us as Christians to motivate us to this work, to strive for our sanctification, to strive to cultivate these characteristics in order to stand firm? He tells the Philippians a few things as he tells them how glad he is that they had revived their concern for him in verse 10. Because apparently they were partners they were partners with him at first. They supported his financial and physical needs. And it seems that at some point they stopped. But Paul doesn't get on to them for that. Instead, it actually seems like he is making excuses for them by saying, you were concerned for me, but you had no opportunity. It's like he's saying, whatever your reasons for stopping your support don't matter. We'll just say that you were concerned for me, but had no opportunity to help. Right? But the reality is, right? as he says, I rejoice that you have finally revived your concern for me. Because it was dead before. And we don't know exactly what went down with all of that. Uh, but Paul is telling them that he is happy that they have revived that cheerful giving spirit within them, that sharing in his troubles, then tells them why he is happy about that. Verse 17, not that I seek the gift, but I seek the fruit that increases to your credit. And then, and then says that these gifts from them uh, not only were fruit that increased to their credit, but also that they were, verse 18, a fragrance offering, a sacrifice acceptable and pleasing to God. 
And this is the same language that he uses in Romans 12, 1 and 2, uh, when he says, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, by the testing, or that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. And so it's not just a cheerful giving spirit that is a fragrant offering, a sacrifice acceptable to God. It is our whole bodies, all of our Christian living, our straining towards the finish line in our sanctification. All of that is pleasing to God. And that work is fruit that increases to your credit. That should motivate you as a Christian who rightfully understands what Christ has done for you. Right, That he willingly died on the cross and willingly suffered your due penalty for your transgression of the law. You should desire to please him out of the overflow of thankfulness in your heart. Paul also tells us in verse 19, God will supply every need of yours according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. What a motivator that is as well. All your, need, all your needs to live this Christian life well, to run the race well, to fight the battle well, and ultimately guarantee that you will reach the finish line, will be supplied to you by God according to His riches and glory in Christ Jesus. And just really quickly, uh, we saw two other motivators in this chapter. Look back at verse 3, where we see whose names are in the book of life. If you are a Christian, your name is in the book of life. Therefore, run the race with confidence and all boldness. Is your name in the book of life? If you are a Christian, it is, but if you're not... Friend, that, that is a scary thing if it is not. But if you repent and believe in the gospel, then your name will also be found in that book on that day. And lastly, look at verse 5. The Lord is at hand. Whether he is at hand in his second coming and therefore we should be ready and live in such a way that we are prepared for that. Or whether he is at hand in our going to him and that this life is but short and momentary. Either way, the Lord is at hand. The Lord is coming. We will be with the Lord soon. And we should encourage each other with that truth. First Thessalonians chapter 4 verse 14 through 17. For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so, through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. For this we declare to you by a word from the Lord, that we who are alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, and with the sound of the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive, 
who are left will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will always be with the Lord. The Lord is at hand, beloved. So those should be our motivators to press on. So, dear Christian brother or sister, press on. March forward. Fight the fight and know that you will be victorious because Christ was victorious for us. This is the message that the apostles wanted to get through to the Philippians through this letter. Stand firm. I want to close by reading a very quick hymn by Isaac Watts, which was written in the 1700s, called Stand Up, My Soul, Shake Off Thy Fears. Stand up, my soul. Shake off your fears and gird the gospel armor on. March to the gates of endless joy where your great captain, Savior's gone. Hell and your sins resist your course, but hell and sins are vanquished foes. Your Jesus nailed them to the cross and sang the triumph when he rose. Then let my soul march boldly on, press forward to the heavenly gates. Their peace and joy eternal reign in glittering robes for conquerors wait. There shall I wear a starry crown in triumph in almighty grace, while all the armies of the skies join in my glorious leader's praise. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you have promised that you are with us and that you will never leave us or forsake us. Father, we are a weak people who are in desperate need of your strength. And we thank you that you provide us with everything that we need to be conquerors. And so we pray, Father, that you would give us even more. Grace upon grace, Lord, strengthen us. Make us a holy people on this side of eternity for your glory and your honor. And we pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So we, uh, we take this opportunity to stand up as we come together in communion. And, and You don't need to stand. I'm sorry. <laughs> Way to respond. Good job. So, I, you know, I just want to reflect on uh, as we go into this time of communion, and this is our family Sunday, uh, to, uh, to participate together. Uh, we are standing up knowing that we are identifying with our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. And, uh, uh, you know, the, uh, you know, growing up in the church as a kid, I always wondered, you know, why do we take communion every month? And, uh, you know, I, I believe that the Apostle Paul gives probably the clearest single explanation in Scripture of the meaning and purpose of communion. I just want to give four, four uh, examples, 
four uh, things to remember as we uh, move into our time of communion. And I just want to read this passage out of uh, 1 Corinthians 11, 23 through 26. For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took the bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, also he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat the bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. So why? So what is communion and why is it so important to us to observe it? Here's number one. Communion is a memorial. Twice Jesus quoted, is quoted in saying, do this in remembrance of me. So the bread reminds us of the physical damage and harm done to our Lord Jesus Christ as he sacrificed himself on the cross. And the cup reminds us of his blood which was shed for the forgiveness of sins. We are to remember that Jesus has given his all to save you and I. Suffering and dying to pay the price for your sin and mine. But it's not enough just to remember that, what Jesus has done for us. We are called to share it. And so the second thing to remember is that it is a proclamation. The Lord instructs us through the Apostle Paul, for as often as you eat the bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. So we proclaim by partaking, by coming and partaking together, we proclaim what God has done for us through the sacrifice of his son, Jesus Christ. We proclaim that Jesus Christ is our Savior. We proclaim it to those who have not yet trusted in the Lord Jesus Christ. To those who and I just want to say this to you. If you do not know the Lord Jesus Christ as your personal Savior, then I would just I would just tell you, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, and thou shalt be saved. Give your heart and life to him. The, the third thing that we reflect on is communion is a reflection. And Paul continues, and he says in uh, verses 27 through 32, whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself and so eat the bread and drink the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body, eats and drinks judgment on himself. That is why many of you are weak and ill. Some have died. But if we judge truly, ourselves truly, we would not be judged. But when we are judged by the Lord, we are disciplined so that we may not be condemned along with the world. So again, I just want to say that it is a time of examination. It's a time of reflection. And it, it, with that in mind, I, I just, uh, uh, I, I'm going to give you an apology right now. Um, we we uh, are working on our budget for the church, and I was supposed to announce that today, and I forgot. And uh, so uh, 
there is a packet, a, a budget packet, you know, that will be uh, for our members, uh, and uh, we will hand those out at the end of service, so you can see uh, myself or whatever, I will have those packets for you. So I ask for your forgiveness. So just, just blew that one off, and, and uh, so anyway, just know that that will be there. Just, uh, uh, But it's a time of reflection, a time of introspection. Am I right with God? Am I right with, with other people? as we've been instructed through the book of Philippians. Are we right with the Lord? I just really want to encourage you, if you do not know the Lord, God is saying you are not right with me. You need me. And I extend you, I have extended you my heart and my life. The last thing is that, it, to remember is that communion is unity. It is about you and I coming together. And so as we, uh, as we sing, and as we come forward and as we participate together, it is really truly considering one another. Let us consider how to stimulate and love one another to love and to peace. It is truly about unity, which really Philippians, the book of Philippians, God really pushes that idea of, of unity, that we are unified in Christ Jesus and in him alone. And that is what we're here for. So I just really want to encourage you with those things. Just as we come together and as we sing, I'm just going to encourage you that we can stand as we sing. And then as you're singing, come forward. Uh, Pastor Jonathan will be in the back. And if for some reason you cannot get up to uh, partake in communion, just raise your hand and he will bring communion to you. And then he will continue to serve communion back there as, as well. As, and then there are two tables up here that we just encourage you to come and participate together. So, Father God, we come before you. We want to say thank you. God, thank you for your love. Thank you for your the, the amazing sacrifice of your son, Jesus Christ, in which we, as a church, identify with. God, we identify, Lord, that he gave his life for us so that we might be made right with you. God, we, uh, we want to say thank you. Lord, let us be a testimony and a light to that. Let us be an encouragement to others who are seeking for answers, Father. Uh, God, may we continue to do that in unity. Uh, as Lord, may we be one. As, Lord, as you prayed, may they be one as we are one. And God, may we be one in you. God, we ask, Lord Jesus, now we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So one of the things I just want to say, communion really is, is not for someone who does not believe. It is for the believer. And if you do not know, if you know the Lord Jesus Christ, then I just really want to encourage you with this. Just ask someone, how do I become a believer? Ask someone. We should be able to share that. Accept the Lord Jesus Christ as your personal Savior. And so we come together just to share what Christ has done for us. Amen? Good song. Please. Thank you.